0: Alright, good morning. Welcome to Hope and Anchor once again. I'm excited to open God's Word this morning and uh, look at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how we, as, as Jesus' followers, uh, can follow in His steps. Uh, sometimes expecting some of the things that uh, He experienced to happen in our lives, but knowing at the, uh, through it all, that the way of Christ leads to life and life everlasting so uh, we are continuing this morning in our rock of Ages series this is week 20 and it's interesting that uh, you know Easter happens every year uh, and uh, as a pastor you kind of wonder like oh, do I write a new an Easter sermon or do I continue in the series we're in and looking at the series uh, sermon that fell today it fell on today I felt like it was a it was a maybe Providence might be a little strong, but I think it was a good fit. And I'm excited about today's message. There's going to be some things that are maybe a little different about it, uh, but, you know, what's new? Huh? So we'll get started. But today's message is called The Lark Ascending. The Lark Ascending. At the outbreak of World War One in 1914... Rafe von Williams composed what would go on to become one of the world's most beloved musical pieces. Unlike almost anything written before, the Lark Ascending turns on the unique interplay of a solo violin up against a full orchestra to symbolize, to to kind of frame in your mind the idea of a bird in the countryside. With a With both a haunting sense of nostalgia for a world that would uh, von Williams sensed would soon be lost to the ravages of war and a hopefulness for the future, von Williams captured both sadness and beauty, loss, and joy, sort of a a calm before the storm here at the eve of World War I. The Lark Ascending evokes the summer countryside in the last days of peace before thousands of young men were sent away to their deaths. Throughout the work, the violin, it flits and it rises over and over again, weaving a thread through the orchestral swells as a lark moving from tree to tree, between tree and sky, levity and melancholy mix in such a way that somehow gives our imagination a new vocabulary, a new vocabulary to express something deeply felt. It's no wonder then that on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the Lark Ascending was voted by New Yorkers as one of the top three musical pieces to commemorate the tragedy, yet resiliency, of that awful event of that painful memory named after a, po- a poet named after a poem by George Meredith Von Williams tells of a lark ascending but in doing so he speaks of so much more uh, scribbled at the at the top of the original manuscript for the score which is now lost Von Williams wrote stanzas for Meredith's poem And those stanzas go like this, read like this. He rises and begins to round. He drops the silver chain of sound of many links without a break in chirrup, whistle, slur, and shake. For singing till his heavens fill, tis love of earth that he instills. And ever winging up and up, our valley is his golden cup. And he, the wine which overflows, to lift us with him as he goes. Wherefore, their soul in me or mine, through self-forgetfulness divine, in them that song aloft maintains to fill the sky and thrill the plains with showerings drawn from human stores as he to silence nearer soars, extends the world at wings and dome, more spacious making more our home. Till lost on his aerial rings in light, and then the fancy sings. So, this was the poem that Ray von Williams was considering, was, 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 in, was thinking of, as he wrote his orchestral piece, The Lark Ascending. So here's that part that's a little different. I want to listen to It's a 16-minute piece. And this morning, I'd like to listen to three minutes of it. So you get a feel for the lark ascending, the violin flitting in and out of the orchestral piece. So we're going to listen to three minutes of the piece. So I'm going to sit there, so I'm not standing here awkwardly fidgeting, okay? So uh, hit it. anyone else hear it the levity and the melancholy mixed one thing I as one listens to the lark ascending one thing you notice is that the lark is never lost sometimes it's hard to find it's 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 silent but then it comes back it's there the lark is never lost sometimes it's quiet other times it's just layered under the orchestra but it's always there the lark is always there it's always singing it's always rising it's always hopeful And it's always overcoming somehow. This is what I love about this piece of music. Has anyone heard that before? The Lark Ascending by Ray Fawn Williams? You will now. It's great. I love it. The one thing I love about this piece of music is how it resonates both with the human experience, but also with the wisdom we find in Scripture. The thread of, of loss yet hope of sorrow yet joy, it seems to punctuate much of the New Testament, and especially Peter's letters that he wrote to his first century readers and that he wrote to us. Throughout his first letter to his fellow followers of Jesus, he has returned often to this theme, the theme of suffering well and holding fast to your faith. In chapter 4, Peter identifies our suffering as uniting us with Christ himself, and he casts our hardships up against what Christ endured on our behalf. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and today we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So then... Since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy their immorality and lust their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander. But remember, so they slander you, but remember, they will have to face God, who will judge everyone both the living and the dead that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead so although they were destined to die like all people they now live forever with God in the spirit the end of the world is coming soon therefore be earnest and disciplined in your prayers most important of all continue to show deep love for each other for love covers a multitude of sins cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay God has given each of you a gift from His great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God Himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it (laughs) with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to Him forever and ever. Amen. So, how did the ethos of redemption through suffering so quickly and so early become central to our understanding of a believer's life in Christ? Because it doesn't seem like that would be like a normal conclusion, or A plus B equals C, like, oh, Jesus died, rose from the dead, conquered death, will lead me into glory, so my following of Him will lead to suffering. How did this become the the expected path of a Christ follower? That we would suffer hardship. We would suffer persecution. How did the ethos of redemption through suffering so quickly and so early become central to our understanding of the believer's life in Christ? How also did living differently from the world, living a life that stood in stark contrast to the way of the the, uh, host culture, Become so closely incorporated into living a faithful life in Christ, persevering in a persecuted life in Christ. How did these things become so closely associated with what it meant to be a Christian, a Christ follower? Persecution and contrast. Do you know that that's been a hallmark of the Christ followers since the very beginning? That they lived very differently. They saw how the world operated and they said, no, that ought not be in the household of God. And as a result, they suffered for that. It was not tolerated well then. And newsflash it's not tolerated well now. Living differently than the way of the world, not living in the approved or um, encouraged ways, brings hardship and brings rejection oftentimes. In the late 1st century, the leaders of the early church, they wrote a short doctrinal statement because the apostles, the original 12 that became the apostles, they were dying. More than that, they were dying from martyrdom. They were being killed, tortured and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ and because of their leadership in the church. So the leaders... Uh, coming up after them in the early church, they decided it is important to write down a short doctrinal statement of Christ's teachings and of what the apostles have passed on to us here so they're not lost. We must know these things as we go forward. And in the earliest collections of Scripture, what would have been considered the earliest collection of New Testament writings, uh, it's pretty... Pretty early on, the New Testament canon was put together. However, there were some uh, appendices uh, tacked onto the end that were included because they were so uh, early and helpful to the young church. Uh, Works like the Shepherd of Hermes, which you may be familiar with, but another one which I'd like to talk a bit about today called the the Didache, or the Didache, or the uh, Didache. Didak, is what it looks like, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. So however you think you should pronounce that, Didache is how I say it. Uh, The Didache was a shortened title for the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles. So that's what Didache means, but Teachings of the Twelve Apostles. This was circulated among the early churches as the first guide to Christian living among the fledgling congregations they wanted to pass around hey just so everyone knows these are the teachings of christ and this is how we ought to live as christians in the world wherever god has sent you they wanted there to be an understood uh not just a statement of faith but also a statement of living how do we live in this world in allegiance to jesus christ so written in the 70s AD, so written in that first century, just a couple decades after Christ himself, the writers of the Didache laid out the basic, basics of how. How to live as a Christ follower, focusing on the way we live the gospel in the world. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the Didache because I imagine you may not have heard this before. So it's interesting, though, and there's some things here that might raise your eyebrows. So hold on. Hold on to your hats if you're wearing one. There are two ways to live, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there is a great difference. Now, this is the way of life. First, you must love God who made you, and second, your neighbor as yourself. Ever heard that before? probably yes that's Jesus' command the the first and, and greatest commandment love god and love your neighbor as yourself and whatever you want people to refrain from doing to you you must not do to them bless those who curse you pray for your enemies abstain from carnal passions give to everybody who begs from you and asks for no and ask for no return Okay, you see what's happening here? These are the ethics. These are the the lived practices of the early church. Like, hey, if you're following Jesus, these are the agreed upon things we do and we don't do. Okay? Just so everyone's on the same page in following Jesus. Uh, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not corrupt boys. Do not fornicate. Do not steal. Do not practice magic. Do not go in for sorcery. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Do not covet your neighbor's property. Do not commit perjury, bear false witness or slander. Do not bear grudges. Before we move on, you heard that part about abortion. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I thought that was an American thing. I thought that was a post Roe v. Wade thing. Uh, I thought, no, the My Body, My Choice idea uh, has been in existence from Greco-Roman culture. There were apothecaries, pharmacists, that would put together concoctions that a woman who got pregnant uh, and didn't want to go through with the pregnancy could drink the concoction, and it would oftentimes uh, stimulate the uh, uh, termination of that pregnancy, the expulsion of the, of, the, of the unborn child from the womb. But as you can imagine, it wasn't very effective. So a lot of times the, the child would be born and so there was a very common practice called exposure. If you've heard of that, it's called exposure. The unwanted child would be taken out to the forest, or even just thrown out on the street for the weather, the elements, or the animals to take care of. And the Christian church saw what was happening. What was an accepted normative behavior in the Roman Empire, in the world around them, and they said, "No." This flies in the face of Creator God. This ought not be among God's people. In the church, this is an unacceptable practice. Life is a gift. All are given the breath of God and bear His image. How dare we treat it as trash? No, no, not here. So I think it's interesting that from the first century... The Christ followers have said, do not murder a child by abortion, and do not kill a newborn infant. It goes on, be patient, merciful, harmless, quiet, and good, and always have respect for the teaching you have been given. Accept whatever happens to you as good in the realization that nothing occurs apart from God. you understand why this might be important? I mean, I've always wondered what it was like to be the second generation of leaders of the church. You know i mean yeah you kind of had like uh you were kind of the headliner wherever you went if you were one of the disciples that became one of the apostles the capital a apostles right but then they're being killed they're being martyred for their faith well what if you're the next guy like um, hey everybody (laughs) my name's adam Uh, i'm stepping in for old old pete now uh james he's dead you know i mean that had to be awkward well but as they moved uh the generations of leadership moved further and further out from jesus himself uh you know the telephone game i mean there can be the discrepancies among the teachings. so it was important to put these things down i mean that's one of the big reasons we have a lot of the new testament is because it was written down so it could be passed on uh and given to us even here now so pretty interesting stuff from the beginning our Christian brothers and sisters knew the way of following Jesus would lead them into a particular manner of living with certain values, certain priorities and certain behaviors. There's always been in the life of a of a someone following Jesus things they did do and things they did not do. We're discerning in that. We say yes to this and no to this on purpose because it matters. The, the early believers, the Christian brothers and sisters, they understood that following Jesus Christ would lead them often into a particular way of suffering and even dying because of the decisions they made, of the way, because of the way they lived their lives. And in that identification, they clung to the promise that as they suffered, Jesus Christ was with them and in him, they too would find resurrection. And they too would be led into new life in him. This, parallels, uh, this parallel that Peter sets up, it highlights that when he sets up here in four, chapter 4, verse 1, it, it resonates well with the Apostle Paul and what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. If you want to flip over to Romans 5, 1 through 5, we hear the Apostle Paul say, Therefore... Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us, they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You see the parallel, He's under, he, Paul understands here too, faithfulness leads to hardship, but God uses that hardship to develop endurance perseverance, maturity in us. Both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul recognized that suffering for the faith in Jesus, suffering for faith in Jesus Christ provided a baptism of sorts which leads to sanctification. It leads to our salvation. We stand confidently, looking joyfully to sharing God's Glory, rejoicing as we face troubles and trials. Why? Because they grow us in Christ's likeness. Now, I think we've heard that a lot, but do we understand that? That God can take all the things that happen to us, the good, and maybe especially the bad, the difficult, those low times, those walks through the valley of the shadow of death, and use those for His glory and for our good in a way that we can't even imagine sometimes. He will take those things and grow us in Christ's likeness. This dynamic it animated the early church, punctuating their perspective so much so that even that Paul, the apostle Paul himself, he longed to know Christ in his what? I want to know Christ in his suffering. That's such a strange statement. I want to know Christ in His suffering, understanding that through it, He would discover and experience deeper and deeper union with Him. Look at, let's look at that. Uh, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, uh, 7 through 10. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. All these things that I'd identified Him before, all the things that had uh, given Him status uh, and social capital, all these things... I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So unusual. Powerful and beautiful, too. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. But I want to know His suffering, too. I want to be united with Him, even in His suffering. There has long been an intermingling of difficulty and resiliency, of suffering and of joy playing in and through the Christian pilgrimage that we are all on if we're following after Jesus. Expect it. Like a lark ascending, there is a tune that plays in each of our hearts that reminds us of the joy ahead despite the scorn and the slander we may may face now in this world. Because our ears are tuned to the song of salvation, playing up against the brokenness of our world, we are not overcome, and we daily pursue hope. Lifting our eyes and lifting our hearts ever heavenward, we find the promise that when we've suffered for Christ, sin no longer has a hold on us. That becomes a mark, a baptism of sorts, that I belong to Christ. I'm suffering in His name. I'm suffering because of my faith in Him, and somehow the power of sin over us starts to fall away. We daily trade the pursuit of our desires, our selfish desires, for God's will, doing away with those wild and destructive things which marked our lives before, things that led to death, immorality, lust, gluttony, drunkenness, debauchery, and idolatry, Our rejection of the world's death-dealing ways leads us to become, then, objects of scorn and slander. You remember how it was in middle school or high school? That student that just did things differently, they dressed differently, they didn't go in for the normal things, how did we treat them? How were they treated? Oftentimes they were bullied. They were rejected because they were different and they were other. And so that behavior, that difference had to be squashed with ridicule and with shame. And guys, in a lot of ways, we never outgrow middle school in our society. We never outgrow high school. And I think we're just kind of getting worse at that. It's becoming normative now to treat people like we did in middle school in our society. And that's kind of sad. But you notice that difference draws ridicule. And it will do that in your faith as well. You'll become the object of scorn and slander, but we must keep God's coming justice in view, trusting His promise and knowing that that we are suffering for Christ, but we're also suffering with Christ. In our hope and our future, it is secure. And here's one final thought I'd like to leave with you. Just as in the Lark Ascending, just as the Lark in, in Rafe von Williams' work is held aloft by the orchestra uh, behind and below, so also is our Christian hope held aloft and shared by the gifts and the care of each member. As we read through this p- passage from Peter's letter, did you see how it ended up there? Drawing us back into the community of faith, back into the fellowship. He's like, hey, hold fast. Suffer well, but don't do it alone. Calls us back into the fellowship. Verse 10, look at that in 1 Peter 4.10. He says, God has given each of, us, or each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. God has given every believer, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, rest assured, you've been gifted in a certain way to serve in the family of God. To go out and express the gospel and the, and the kindness of the Lord in the community. You're gifted. You're skilled by God. God has given every believer one or more gifts from his rich variety of spiritual gifts, which were intended to contribute to the chorus, intended to contribute to that orchestra. I love how the NIV reads in, this, in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I love that. Your gift is allowing you to serve as a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. We will never know the fullness of God's grace until everybody steps up and starts sharing their giftedness. Do you understand that? You'll never know the fullness of God's grace until each of us are playing our part. You have a particular way of showing God's grace in this place, in this community, that only you can share. God's gifted you uniquely. He's entrusted a treasure to you that can be shared in the family, and it ought to be. Otherwise, we'll never know that aspect. We'll never see that facet of God's grace in our midst. And selfishly, I don't want to miss that. I want to see your gift. I want to see God's grace through you. I learn more about God's grace when you live faithfully sharing that gifting. Is that exciting? I mean, is that, it should be encouraging, right? If we are to know the full expression of God's grace in our midst, if we are to persevere and to discover His strength and unity, each and every person in the church must be playing their part and lending their notes. You must be lending your note, otherwise the piece falls flat. It becomes thin and incomplete. And here's the rub. As long as it's left up to gifted pastors and motivated ministry leaders to play all the parts, while the congregation spectates, the song of God's multifaceted grace expressed among us will be thin and incomplete. I mean, we need to hear that, don't we? as long as it's left up to gifted pastors and motivated ministry leaders to play all the parts while the congregation spectates, the song of God's multifaceted grace expressed among us will be thin and incomplete. What a shame. That'd be a sad situation. The lark ascending here, in this tumultuous time and place, threading a beautiful tune of suffering and hope, of sorrow and joy, it requires each of us to play our part. Your spiritual vitality depends on it. My spiritual vitality, it depends on us. We must all play our part. We are not meant to suffer alone. We show up and we share We discipline ourselves to pray together. We show deep love to one another, and we open our homes. We open our lives. We share our lives with all those in need. And when we do, rest assured, we bring glory to God through Christ Jesus while we wait. And so, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for that encouragement, that motivation we need to know that uh, the path of following Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, is not always easy. It's not always comfortable. But your plan is always at work to grow us and to strengthen us, to develop in us Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity. And God, that you've not called us to that on our own, that we're, that's not the, uh, a puzzle that we have to solve uh, each for ourselves. We can rely on each other. We must rely upon each other. That in the context of the local body of faith, the local body of believers, we can lean on you and we can learn about you as your grace is expressed through each person through their various and unique giftings. God, show your grace here. Lord, as we go out into the world, may we be a people who uh, truly believe there's a depth and a durability to our belief, but that belief is directing how we live our lives. That we go out and we're truly equipped and willing to be a city on a hill. A contrast culture within our host community. That people would understand and know that as a follower of Jesus, we are living, walking a particular, specific path. There are things we'll do and we will not do because our heart is set on glorifying God, our Maker. We will live according to His expressed will, that which has been expressed to us through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. God, I pray you that on this Easter Sunday, help us look to Christ and His sufferings and know that through His sufferings come our salvation and that we, with the Apostle Paul, we would desire to know Christ in power, but also, we would desire to, and be willing to know him in his suffering. So that we too would be raised up and discover afresh and in its fullness salvation. Lord, we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, we're going to worship a little bit more, but before we get singing and stuff, here's a time for you to sit and engage with the Lord. Spend some time in prayer. Lay these things before him and say, God, have I understood that the path to following Jesus is hard that the difficulty is not always a sign of my disobedience or my uh, doing things wrong. Maybe living faithfully and doing things right will lead me into hardship. I mean, disclaimer there's a lot of Christians doing dumb things that have nothing to do with Jesus right now. Mm-hmm. People are getting scorn, Christians are, are receiving scorn, rejection, and persecution because they're being dumb. Mm-hmm. I mean, God's not honored by your dumbness, I guess is maybe the key takeaway phrase. But if we are living according to Scripture, understanding that ours is to live in the way that Jesus has commanded us to live, when that brings scorn and that brings rejection, persecution, hardship, and even death, we can rest assured that we're safe and that through faith in Jesus Christ, God will bring us safely home. So know the difference, uh, I guess. But sit with the Lord. Say, search me and know me. Help me grow in this understanding. Help my life be a living uh, act of worship. May it be a living anthem of praise to you and all the things I do from this day forward. If you'd like to pray with someone, if you understand that today God is calling you to start following Jesus, start living and walking that path of following after Jesus Christ through faith, I'd love to pray with you. I'll be at the back. But here's the thing. Make the most of this opportunity.